Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series. I am Patrick Beeman, the usual host here with uh, Dr. Austin Williams. I mean, you sent me your CV, Austin. That, you know, there's a list, but I'm chiefly interested in, in noting the fact that you recently were the author of Surgery Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls. But there's, you know, you, you've you got some pretty decent experiences here. Um, so why don't you tell us what's, what do you consider the most interesting thing about you or your greatest notable piece of your CV? Uh, sure. Well, thanks for having me. So, uh, yeah, I'm a surgery resident. And as you mentioned, um, I did just publish with Elsevier, uh, a case-based review of general surgery for medical students called Surgery Morning Report Beyond the Pearls. And I, I do think that that is the most different of anything I've ever done and certainly something I'm, I'm, I'm proud of. And that belongs to a series of medical student review books. So certainly uh, we're, we're proud to join that series. Also think probably something that I'm proud of and that is notable um, is that I've spent a lot of my time as a surgery resident doing research related to breast cancer, and I'm applying for breast oncology fellowships this winter. So I'm going to be you know, going back to the interview trail, uh, probably just as I left it, no fun, uh, but uh, going, going to be applying for fellowships soon. Awesome. What made you decide uh, to do a fellowship? You're, you know, looking at five years of general sur surgery training, like, or just a glutton for punishment or... <laughs> well, I do think if you if you look at sort of stats, the vast majority of of folks, even after general surgery, are doing uh, are doing fellowships. And luckily, um, general surgery fellowship or fellowships coming out of general surgery are mostly one year, as opposed to multi year fellowships, which are seen out of internal medicine. So actually, when you look at some of the medicine fellowships and compare them to the trajectory of a surgery resident doing a fellowship. The amount of time is not actually that different. I knew that I wanted to, to specialize in something and something related to oncology when I started my surgical residency. And I, I found that this specialty in terms of taking care of one basic problem, one body system was a good fit for me. All right. And uh, why were you interested specifically in oncology? Well, when I was a medical student uh, going into my clinical rotations, I thought I was going to be a medical oncologist. And I scheduled my surgical rotation for first in the lineup of my third year clerkships uh, because I thought I wanted nothing to do with it. And it turns out that I actually really liked the procedural aspect of surgery. And I talked myself into for several months the fact that I only liked it because it was my first time interacting with patients almost full time and I was finally out of the classroom. But when boiled down to it, I found that uh, I actually really did like the immediate gratification that you get out of performing an operation or uh, doing a procedure. Uh, and I definitely decided that uh, I wanted to be in a surgical specialty. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, we always like to pepper in kind of the the rationale or the reasons why people are doing uh, whatever it is they're doing within uh, clinical work. So thanks for that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? Students listening to this podcast, should they pick up this book? Is that a leading question? <laughs> I think it's probably a leading question, and I, I, I'll certainly say yes. 
And I think the theory behind this book series, and and certainly uh, the volume that for which I was the editor, uh, is that when you are able to hang the details, both in terms of basic science and clinical details of the pathophysiology that you're le- that you're learning, and um, all of the different sort of trajectories that you can go when caring for the same problem, it's much easier to think through them and remember them when you have a patient in mind. Uh, When I was in medical school, I actually did a a completely problem-based curriculum in the first two years uh, and found that I learned very well that way and that I remembered things I thought better than had I just heard about them in a lecture hall. And so that, uh, I think, sort of builds into my excitement for this type of a volume where the case, let's say that it's a case of right upper quadrant abdominal pain, follows a, a, pa- a patient case uh, through questions throughout the entire chapter from start to finish, from the presenting problem uh, to the workup and to the surgical management of the patient, uh, and then gives the alternatives. What if this symptom had been present and this had not been present? How would that change your management? And so uh, I really think that it's a fairly authentic way to learn and a memorable way to learn. That's awesome. Well, everyone go get uh, surgery morning report beyond the pearls. And we'll put a link in the show notes to that. Let's move on to our questions for today. Dr. Williams is a um, a soon-to-be breast surgeon. Looking at your CV, I'm pretty confident we can say that. So we've invited him on here today to uh, tackle some general surgery questions for this series and uh, specifically to perhaps deal with some of the challenges that students often have in distinguishing the different types of breast diseases that medical students are expected to know on something like the USMLA Step 2 or a shelf exam. First up... A 74-year-old male presents the emergency department complaining of mid-epigastric pain, dysphagia, and shortness of breath. His past medical history is significant for hypertension, diabetes, dyslipidemia, and a one-year history of gastroesophageal reflux disease, and his past surgical history is negative. Medications include omeprazole, lisinopril, metformin, and atorvastatin, vital signs are significant for a blood pressure of 156 over 92. His EKG shows normal sinus rhythm without signs of ischemia. Cardiac enzymes are negative. Chest x-ray shows elevation of the gastroesophageal junction and bowel superior to the diaphragm. A CT confirms the presence of the GE junction fundus of the stomach as well as large bowel within the mediastinum. What is the most likely diagnosis? A, a type 1 sliding hiatal hernia. B, a type 2 paraesophageal hiatal hernia. C, type 3 paraesophageal hiatal hernia. Or D, a type 4 paraesophageal hiatal hernia. Whew, man, that's hard to say. Um, All right, and the correct answer here, I'd usually give it, but do you just want to go through it in the way you would break down a question, or do you want to state it first here? Uh, Let's let's go ahead and break it down. So this is a really common type of uh, surgery question for both step exams uh, as well as shelf exams, where you're not actually asked what 
the management is, you're more so diagnosing uh, surgical disease. And here specifically, it's asking you the anatomy of surgical disease, very common type of question. So uh, they sort of drag you along through an entire, It's this is not cardiac chest pain, so you rule that out, and then you have imaging findings. For a hiatal hernia, you're looking for what aspect has been has herniated above the diaphragm and in two imaging uh, modalities you can see that there is bowel superior to the diaphragm there should not be bowel superior to the diaphragm and so you know that something is wrong here and going through the types of hiatal hernias the only type of hiatal hernia that has bowel and not just stomach above the diaphragm is a type 4 hiatal hernia Type 1, sliding, just the GE junction. Type 2, parasophageal, the fundus of the stomach has herniated above the diaphragm. Type 3 is mixed. And then type 4, you've got the, the stomach as well as another organ. It could be bowel. It could be a portion of something else. But suffice it to say here, it's bowel. Okay. So this is a matter of kind of memorizing the classification or taxonomy of hiatal hernia? Exactly. It's it's a pure memorization and then figuring out what is important in the imaging findings here that they're giving you. Okay. Not to put you on the spot, but so cloudily and vaguely in my mind, I can remember studying like things in surgery near the diaphragm and Bakhtelec and Morgani hernias. Are those related to diaphragmatic hernias or would you call? Yes, those are types of congenital diaphragmatic hernias and sort of what the, the pathophysiology and sort of the anatomy of, of those types of hiatal hernias. Obviously, we've got a 74-year-old here, so so those would, would not uh, or should not apply, typically diagnosed before, before now. We'll leave that. I won't make you to, uh, go in and explain how that might show up on a shelf exam. <laughs> yeah, uh, takeaway point, basically... Type 4 parasophageal hiatal hernia is the only one of these listed that shows not only just the stomach, but also some other organ, simply so. Exactly. The diaphragm. And, and typically, it's going to be transverse colon because that's right there. Okay. Makes sense. All right. Uh, let's move on. Quick break for a message from us. Hi, I'm Patrick Beeman. I founded Inside the Boards to help students learn to think like USMLE question writers so they can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on their exams. Whoa, whoa, wait, Patrick, we can't use that music. What, what do you mean? Yeah, we had to cancel the audio licensing because the payment was declined. Seriously? At least we still have our equipment and microphones and stuff. Actually, no, your kid was playing down here the other day and knocked the mic off the table and <laughs> broke it. Can't you just use your personal card to pay for this stuff? I mean, I can, but Liz has like $350,000 in student loans from med school. I can't really afford to be... Well, aren't you about to ask our listeners for money? Don't they have a shit ton of student loans too? Yeah, good point. You know, we could use one of those sponsorship proposals we got, you know, as long as you're cool with selling your soul like that. Oh, really? Yeah, sign me up. From the makers of Pseudo Caesar Salad Dressing comes the most delicious and refreshing drink to hit the physician's lounge since Chronic Lime Margarita Mix. Introducing the new line of CSF-inspired microbrews, Spinal Tap. 
So when you're thirsting for anything from intern, traumatic tap redberry, to grape champagne tap, reach for a cold glass of Spinal Tap. Warning, women who are pregnant or nursing should consult an obstetrician before consuming Spinal Tap beverages. Spinal Tap is not liable for any business upon standing or loss of sensation below S1 that may occur. Please drink responsibly. From the makers of Bud Chiari and Bud Chiari Light Beer. If you'd like to support ITV, just like the makers of the new Spinal Tap Med Student Energy Drink, go to insidetheboards.com support. Now, back to the real show. Next, a 42-year-old African-American female presents to the clinic with right upper quadrant abdominal and epigastric pain. She describes the pain as sharp and intermittent like a knife in my belly. She states the pain comes and goes and is especially pronounced after fatty meals like pizza. She's not currently experiencing any pain. Her past medical history is significant for hypertension and dyslipidemia. Her only medication is metoprolol. Vital signs are within normal limits, save for her BMI, which is 38. Right upper quadrant ultrasound shows numerous gallstones within the gallbladder. What is the most likely diagnosis? And our answer choices here are A, cholecystitis, B, cholelithiasis, C, ascending cholangitis, or D, acute appendicitis. So this one is, uh, I would say this is a softball question, but then again, I've it's hard sometimes to remember what you didn't know, I found. Maybe walk me through this as if I were on my first day of a general surgery rotation? Sure. So uh, I, I think that this question really does highlight, though, something that you're going to see very frequently. The exams do love gallbladder questions because there is a, a very distinct gradation from, from one uh, pathophysiologic manifestation of gallstones to another. Uh, and we, we certainly see that here. So we know that she's got gallstones and she's got pain in the right spot. And so we're going to eliminate acute appendicitis right away. That doesn't, that doesn't really make sense for the location of her pain, though do know that uh, malrotation, you can have the appendix in all sorts of different places. But, but we, we've got gallstones here, so suffice it to say there's probably uh, a gallbladder issue going on. Then you need to sort of look at the patient as she is in front of you and say, is this patient sick? Are her gallstones making her sick? And she is not currently experiencing any pain, though she was experiencing pain. So we're not on the furthest to the left of the spectrum, which would be gallstones that are asymptomatic. And we're not sort of to the furthest right of the spectrum where we would have ascending cholangitis where really sick need fluids in the ICU. So we're someplace in between. So we're going to get rid of ascending cholangitis. She's not sick enough for that. So we're left between cholecystitis and cholelithiasis. The difference between cholelithiasis and cholecystitis, you can look at the suffix there, itis, means there's inflammation of the gallbladder. And individuals with inflammation of the gallbladder should still be experiencing pain and or have tenderness uh, in the right upper quadrant as they present. Whereas cholelithiasis, that pain can come and go, and she just ate a fatty meal such as pizza, and so she, in fact, probably had 
what some people would say a gallbladder attack or um, her gallbladder was contracting because of the, the fatty meal and uh, ultimately ended up having pain. Now, the, the acronym or the sort of the mnemonic that folks use here related to the individuals or patients most likely to be presenting with this, this patient has all of them. So fertile, fat, female, and 40. She's 42. Her BMI is 38. And she's a female. She fits all four of those as well. So the answer here is going to be cholelithiasis. Now, if you had the same vignette, and let's say her vital signs include a, a fever, 101.0 temperature, but everything else is the same, in that instance, would it be safe to just pick cholecystitis, noting or assuming that the fever would be indicative of uh, more of an inflammation infection picture? Yeah, they're going to need to make it clear for you that there is something uh, in terms of physical exam finding or imaging finding, and they didn't necessarily say anything uh, was abnormal aside from gallstones here. So no gallbladder wall thickening um, or edema around the gallbladder to say that it's cholecystitis. But they're going to have to give you something to to sway you uh, to make a diagnosis of cholecystitis. Um, so I, I think you would not have a fever in cholelithiasis, so they'd be trying to get you to pick cholecystitis over that. And on that note, ascending cholangitis, there's a triad, no, a pentad associated with that, isn't there? So um, for cholangitis, you have Charcot's triad, oh, which is the fever, jaundice, and abdominal pain. And then the pentad, I think, is when you end up with neurologic changes and sort of mental status and, and shock. So they're, they're much sicker. Yeah, let's, uh, we'll pick that up here. So we're going with cholelithiasis for the answer here. If there were some other ind indications of infection, uh, we might be swayed, would probably be swayed more towards cholecystitis or ascending cholangitis. Um, we've ruled out appendicitis because of the location of the pain and some of the other historical features here. But my question would be, um, uh, actually two questions. One, what imaging findings would you expect to see with cholecystitis over cholelithiasis? And then next, let's tackle how to distinguish cholangitis from these other uh, diseases here. Sure. So on imaging, and, and again, you, you're going to be using right upper quadrant ultrasound here, which is the uh, imaging modality that is going to provide you with these diagnoses over a CT scan or, or something else in terms of abdominal imaging. But the things that you're looking for that are going to show you or to tell you that this is going to be cholecystitis over cholelithiasis would be signs of inflammation of the gallbladder. So a thickening of the gallbladder wall and fluid around the, uh, the gallbladder, also known as pericholecystic edema. Okay, cool. And then I know the, the boards tend to just love things that could be shoved into a mold because, you know, again, I say this like all the time, but um, the goal of the, the licensing exams are to take the gray world of clinical medicine and, and make it black and white, kind of mathematical, so we can test you on it. I don't see the triad or expected uh, pentad associated with answer choice C, uh, ascending cholangitis, but there are 
a triad and a pentad associated with this within the review books. Can you speak to that? Sure, there are. And so sort of back up, yes, you're going to have to memorize the triad and the pentad and know what goes with them. But um, as I sort of mentioned, when you're first looking at the question, and when you're first looking at a patient in clinical practice, you have to ask yourself, sick or not sick. And so the things related to the triad and the pentad tell you that the patient is sick. So Charcot's triad for cholangitis would be jaundice due to obstruction of the common bile duct, fever, and right upper quadrant abdominal pain. So she doesn't have pain, she doesn't have fever, she doesn't have jaundice. The pentad means you've got obviously two other symptoms. These patients are even sicker. And so this is when you've got altered mental status and and shock. So it'd be hypotensive, tachycardic. So these patients are incredibly sick and need to be uh, admitted to the ICU. And would you say it's safe to assume that if they were looking for an answer like uh, ascending cholangitis, those uh, three elements of Charcot's triad would, would be in there? You'd be able to kind of move the puzzle pieces in place in, in order for them to be asking about that diagnosis? I, I feel like that is the case. A- a- absolutely. They're not going to, to leave you to try to guess what the question writer uh, is is thinking without giving you the symptoms to back up their diagnosis. So my point there would be, (laughs) like, if you're on an exam and you are torn between, like, two answer choices which have very similar presentations, um, but you know, you just know that the differentiator is this one disease, uh, or excuse me, this one symptom or sign that would be part of some significant triad, you can confidently change your diagnosis to whatever matches the triad. Like I think about Beck's triad, you know, jugular venous distension, hypotension, and muffled heart sounds. Well, if you're looking at a a vignette and it uh, reports a patient has uh, two of those physical exam findings and it also mentions another portion of the triad, but you're torn between two diagnoses because, man, maybe they're trying to trick me. No, they are not. If you can identify all three elements of a, a notable triad or a pentad, be confident that you're thinking along the right lines and they're evaluating your knowledge of those things. So you should answer based on what the uh, expected um, evaluation is. So if that all makes sense. So did you have anything else on this one? I don't think so. That's all we got for today. We'll be back next time with even more from our Study Smarter series. And don't forget about the main ITB podcast channel. Our current series is with Dr. Chris Cimino, the VP of Kaplan Medical and their chief medical officer inside the USMLE, all about the test writing process, how questions are constructed, everything you'd want to know about how exam questions are created and actually placed on the exams.